the like. But unfortunately, enmity is all too normal when we live outside the Garden of Eden. Most people acquire over time their own personal enemies, those who hate us, despise us, rubbish us, ignore us, as the case may be. Be it our neighbour who lives just a couple of doors away from us or the so-called colleague at work who is always backstabbing us or the, the cousin who won't actually talk to us at the family wedding or worse, one in our own household, you know, our own sibling, our daughter, our father, our, our spouse. The personal enemy is all too common. Since the time of Adam and Eve, when husbands and wives don't get on with each other, and since Cain killed Abel, and God actually had to put a protective mark on the forehead of Abel to protect him from strangers. We have these stranger enemies as well, these tribal enemies, as well as the personal ones. Since the Tower of Babel, when God divided us by confusing our languages, and we have different tribal groups opposing each other, nations, races, literal tribes, uh, castes, cultures that just can't get on with each other. And we may wish to ignore all this and call it un-Australian, but daily in our newspapers we read of Serbia or Rwanda, of Ireland or Palestine, of Assyria or Iraq, Iran, of India, of, of Sudan, of Indonesia. I mean, the list just goes on of places where people don't get on with people, only too happy to kill each other. And it keeps reminding us that humans don't live in peace and harmony. In the early 1960s, when I went to university, I remember interracial harmony was being lauded as the effective, successful multiculturalism, that if we could just reach a multicultural society, we would live in peace and harmony. And the illustrations of how it would work were fascinating. There were three, really, of peaceful, harmony, multicultural societies. Fiji, Sri Lanka and Yugoslavia. They were the three illustrations of how people can get on with each other in the early 1960s. I'm sure none of those three could be illustrations of it by the end of the 20th century. So today we look at the last paragraph in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through to 48, and we're confronted with the issue of living with our enemies under the challenge of unearthly love. For we all have our enemies... How are we going to live with them? How are we going to get along with them? In the Bible, Israel's enemies were God's enemies, for Israel was God's chosen people. So even though the enemies of Israel were raised up by God and used by God to punish Israel for its sinfulness, yet they still remained God's enemies as they opposed his people. Uh, God had promised Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who curses you, I will curse. That's right back in Genesis 12 at the beginning of the whole Israel story. And so when the nations rose up against the Lord, or as we have it in Psalm 2, against the Lord and against his anointed, the Israelites could feel some justification in fighting their enemies as the enemies of God. We in Australia can't go to war on the assumption that God is on our side. But Israel could go to war on the assumption that God was on their side. For Australia is not God's nation, but Israel was God's nation. They had been sent into Palestine to conquering the Canaanites in the name of God. 
God was punishing the Canaanites for their dreadful sinfulness. And Israel was to make no treaty with them, nor to intermarry them. We, of course, do not like to think of any culture as being so wicked as deserving to be demolished completely. Though you only have to think back to Nazism to realise there are some things that need to be demolished completely. And Nazism was a Sunday school picnic compared to the kind of life of Canaanite culture. For Israel, no compromise, no friendship. They were to take the land with no captives. For the Canaanites, by their excessive godlessness, had become the enemies of God and were said to be punished by God with the weapon of his wrath, namely the nation of Israel under their great leader Joshua. Canaanites were to be cleared out of the promised land of Palestine. But subsequently, when the Israelites turned their back on God and entered into the same godlessness of the Canaanites, they too were conquered. They were conquered by the Assyrians and by the Babylonians, pagan empires raised up by God to punish his own people. The Assyrians in the 8th century BC and the Babylonians in the 6th century BC destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, dispersing its people all over the Assyrian Empire, and then destroyed the southern kingdom of Judah, taking all the people off into captivity in Babylon. When these pagan empires did this, they were attacking God's people and God's willful, sinful people. But still, they were God's people that were being attacked. And so both Assyria and Babylon in due time and those who rejoiced with the destruction of God's people like the people of Edom were all repaid for attacking God's people because in their attack upon God's people they were in fact attacking God. Thus in the Psalms we read of the joy over seeing Israel's enemies defeated and over seeing Israel's conquerors conquered but Israel's law had another dimension to it. Another dimension than national and international affairs and relationship. It also contained the dimension of personal relationships. And ponder it, friend, we still have this. There is an ethics we have personally, there is an ethics we have nationally, and then there's international ethics. And certain things that we accept and tolerate in another nation we wouldn't accept and tolerate in Australia. And we may not even accept everything in Australia in our own life personally. So other nations practice polygamy. Australia doesn't accept polygamy. And I hope that you will not accept even adultery. My personal ethics is different to our national ethics, is different to our international ethics. And so Israel's law not only related to how you deal with the international enemies and how you run the state of Israel, but also how you deal with your own life. And that personal dimension can be summarised as love your neighbour. So Leviticus chapter 19 verses 17 to 18 says, You shall love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. Israel's was God's holy people, 
different to all the cultures and nations around about them, who had to live differently. That's what we mean by the word holiness. It was distinctiveness. They were the people who were carrying the name Yahweh. And Yahweh is the God of love. And therefore they must love their neighbour as themselves because they were Yahweh's people. It's part of that distinctiveness to love your neighbours. And it was a refusal to give in to enmity. Now the teachers of the law in Jesus' day, especially those of the Pharisaic tradition, they didn't have the Spirit of God within them. And so when they taught the law, by what we've been calling the Pharisaic minimisation method, they were seeking all the time to minimise what the law required, looking for the loophole whereby you could avoid what the law was really meaning. Because they didn't have the Spirit changing their hearts to want to obey the law, to want to obey God, they wanted to always look for the loophole. They always wanted to look like they were keeping the law while still just doing whatever they wanted to do anyway. I heard another good illustration of this the other day. I've been saying this every week for the last few weeks, those of you who are here. Uh, reinforcement, repetition is very good educationally, so you keep hearing it, but I'll give you a new illustration this week so that you won't be too bored with my old illustrations. I heard of a little girl, a preschooler of a very determined nature. In fact, I think there's a little book written about her called The Strong-Willed Child, which is just her own particular book. Uh, she was told not to cross the road without holding hands. And so her mother held out her hand and said, you mustn't cross the road without holding hands, to which the little girl looked very long and hard at her mother and then grabbed hold of her own hands and walked across the road holding her hands. She fulfilled the law, holding hands. She just missed the point totally of keeping the law. There is a Pharisee in the making in one of the suburbs of Sydney. When the Spirit of God brings new birth, he moves us and motivates us to want to obey the law. Now that is a fundamental difference. Not just then do we look for the minimum requirement of the law and no longer are we interested in a loophole, now we seek to maximise the law and look for new ways and extra ways and additional ways in which we could apply the law to some other aspect of our life. So when the law in Leviticus says, love your neighbour, the Pharisee immediately asks the question, but who is my neighbour? How do you define that word neighbour? It's a lawyer's question, if you ever heard it, isn't it? Instead of listening to what the law was saying about love, the lawyer will quibble about the meaning of the word neighbour. Who is my neighbour is a question you could reasonably ask. Is it just the person next door? Is it the person in the street? Is it the person in my suburb? Is it a person in my city, in my nation? In... Who is my neighbour? We see the discussion worked out most famously in the lawyer's question to Jesus in Luke chapter 20, 10. For when he's told to love his neighbour, he says in verse 29, and who is my neighbour? Notice, when he says that, Luke tells us why he says that. Desiring to justify himself, he asked, who is my neighbour? 
This is classic Phariseeism. I look like I'm asking a question to find out an answer, but in fact I'm asking a question to justify myself. So often we, we ask questions for different motives than the question appears. The, it's classic Phariseeism in that the law is discussed, a question is asked, a definition is sought for, and then arguments are going to follow from that so that we can contain the law, so that it can be more manageable for us, so that we could look like we're fulfilling the law, while of course we're not at all. Jesus replied to the lawyer with the parable of the Good Samaritan, that very famous, most, one of the most famous of his parables, at which he finishes with a question, which of these proved neighbour to the man who fell among the robbers? And of course the answer had to be the Samaritan. And then the command came to the lawyer, you go and do likewise. For the Pharisee loved the debate and the discussion, but he never liked the doing. But there's a second string to the Pharisee's bow. Once they'd defined their neighbour carefully and minimally, then they could hate the aliens. Anyone who fell outside the commandment of love was fair game to not love, that is, to hate. Especially the conquered nations or the conquering nations. That is, if my neighbour is my fellow Israelite, then all others are not my neighbours and I don't have to love them. The Romans, the pagans, the Samaritans, which, of course, is why the parable is the parable of the good Samaritan. That's why it was such a galling and infuriating parable for Jesus to tell. For of all the people to show us how to be neighbourly, the Samaritans, of all people, they were the ones whom the Jews hated the most, the Samaritans. And here is the Samaritan who is showing me how to keep my law. It was galling. And Jesus is quoting the Pharisees when he says, you shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But the law itself didn't teach Israel to hate all non-Israelites, all Gentiles, all aliens. In fact, that very chapter 19 of Leviticus that taught them to love their neighbours were the commandments to be generous to the poor and generous to the aliens. And so we read in verses 33, 34, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do to him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you and you shall love him as yourself. Not just your neighbour, but the alien, the stranger, the sojourner, that's the one you shall love as yourself as well. And why? Well, because you were strangers in Egypt once. I mean, remember what it felt like when you were a foreigner, when you were a refugee. Love the refugee as yourself, for he is your neighbour when you are neighbourly to him. And so neighbourliness is an attitude of relationship to the other person, not a question of how close they happen to live next to you, under you, on top of you, or wherever. So when we come to the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus, fishermen, they are being given instructions on how to keep the law. In particular, how to keep the law more righteously, more righteously than the Pharisees. 
they were taught to keep all the law, not with that spirit of minimalization, not with that highly developed casuistry by which we analyse every word to avoid what it means, not with clever arguments and splitting of straws. They were to keep all the law with the devotion to the law of God, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, knowing that persecution and enmity await them because like salt and light they would be so different to the, to the rest of society they would stand out like a city on a hill and people would hate them because of it. Have you ever heard outside Christian circles anybody ever say anything nice about a Puritan or about the Puritans? Now, I'm sure there were sinful Puritans in fact, I'm sure that any good Puritan teacher would teach you that all Puritans are sinful, because all humans are sinful. But they were no more sinful than anybody else, and in fact, they were a good sight more moral than almost any other culture in the history of mankind, because they were passionate about keeping God's word. And they raised the standard of their society and changed the character of their society for good in many, many ways but they are universally hated. That's the character of it, isn't it? Many of you wander around London or England and they take you for those walks and show you the historical sites. They will refer to Cromwell and they all spit and curse. It was Cromwell who did this dreadful thing. It was Cromwell who did that dreadful thing. The Puritans destroyed this, the Puritans destroyed that. The only time I've ever heard anything positive about Cromwell and the Puritans was when I went on a Jewish walk once and the Jew pointed out that Cromwell was the man who brought the Jews into England and was the first of the English rulers to ever give tolerance to the Jews. But that's the only group I've ever met who have ever said anything positive, who've ever got a sense of historical accuracy. Because if you stand for morality and integrity as they tried to do, all men will hate you and revile you and speak ill of you. Geoffrey uh, Robertson wrote a book called The Regicide recently, about two or three years ago. He's an atheist, Geoffrey Robertson. Is, I'm not being rude to him. He's a self-confessed atheist, a leading atheist. But he's also a Republican and therefore it's an anti-monarchist book. And he was having an argument with his friend Richard Kirby, who was a monarchist, and he actually said that the Puritans did the right thing in killing Charles I and the way in which he was beheaded was right. That's why he wrote a book on the regicide. And he is, winds up saying the most positive things about the Puritans because having investigated carefully the history of the Puritans, he came to see so much of the legal ethics of our constitutional legal understanding were built out of Puritan thinking. The great international lawyer and jurist on the issues of civil rights and the rest came to understand that it was actually the Puritans that gave rise to most of the ethical understanding of law that we now take for granted. But it is a very rare book that you'll find anybody saying something nice about the Puritans because they are like the light, they are like the salt, they are like a city on a hill, a culture that looks so different to everybody else. 
So when we come to the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' fishermen, that's what we're to be expecting. And Jesus gives his famous command in chapter 5, verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This will fulfill the law of Leviticus 19. For whether your neighbour is your friend or your enemy, whether he is a sojourner or a member of your family, you should love him and do good to him and help him like the Good Samaritan. And not only love them but also pray for them. Pray for their welfare, pray for their benefit. Bring them to God and seek mercy and change of heart so that they might be moved from their enmity towards you and so that you will not be taken up with enmity towards them. Pray for those who persecute you and wrong you. Pray for them in your love for them. Oh, my friends, this can be so difficult to do it, can't it? So hard when somebody has been rude, nasty, undermined you, cut you, to actually pray for them and their welfare. But also, my friends, if you do, it transforms you as well as transforming your relationship. And God, in his mercy, may answer your prayers. It's a very practical step, not only in that God will hear your prayer and change their enmity, but also in changing your own heart's attitude towards them, thus protecting you from the bitterness and from revenge and from hatred, for it is hard to keep hating people. You keep praying for people, you'll find it very difficult to keep hating them. And when you live like this, you are like salt and light, quite different to the rest of the world, where payback and hatred, nursing grudges and seeking to get even are the normal actions of the world. This is abnormal actions. Here is a picture of Festo Kivangere, a wonderful African bishop who is now with the Lord. He lived in the time of Idi Amin in Uganda. For those who are young enough not to know, Idi Amin was one of the great monster dictators of the 20th century, an absolutely appalling man, one of the very worst, naturally trained by the British before being appointed in order to destroy his country. During that time he was there, there was an archbishop called Luwum, and Archbishop Luwum was the particular friend of Idi Amin. He was his archbishop as, uh, sorry, particular friend of Kevin Jara. He was his archbishop as Festo was his bishop. And Archbishop Luwum was, was assassinated by Idi Amin. It was kind of the last straw in Idi Amin's reign and after Luwum and a couple of other high-ranking and totally innocent people were barbarically killed, the nation turned and we got rid of Idi Amin. It was, it was just a, a cause celeb which was just, he went one step too far when he killed the woman, who was a well-known, greatly loved and completely honourable man. Years later, Festo Kivangero wrote a very famous book whose name is I, I Love Idi Amin. Of course, of course, furor when it came out. Nobody, not even his mother, liked Idi Amin. 
let alone love Idi Amin. I mean, that's an absurdity. Let alone the man whose closest friend had been killed by him. But yet, Festo did because he was a Christian. And the Bible tells you, love your enemies. Pray for your enemies. One of our friends here in Sydney wrote a lovely book about forgiving Hitler. Kitty Diosi was a Jewish, is a Jewish lady who became a Christian when she came out to Australia, having escaped from the Holocaust. She and only one other member of her family escaped from the Holocaust, a Hungarian Jew. She was converted, she became a Christian, and she came to forgive what Adolf Hitler did to her and her family. The very title of the book, like the title I Love Idi Amin, is offensive. The idea of, I actually can forgive Adolf Hitler. And yet, if you know the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will know that your basis with God is built on his forgiveness of you. Forgiveness is the nature of the gospel. That is the character of the love of God. I cannot continue to have hatred in my heart towards my enemies when God so loved me that while I was still his enemy, Christ died for me. In the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ, persecution, misrepresentation, lies, defamation, opposition, hatred and enmity in all its forms are to be expected. But we don't meet it just passively with stoic acceptance but actively with love and prayer. Oh yes, we turn the other cheek, but we turn the other cheek in order to pray to God for the person who has so hit us. And notice the purpose. Jesus gives to his disciples for acting in this way. You see it in verse 45? So that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. The Israelites were to love their neighbour because they were the God's people. They bore his name. They represented him to the world. The disciples are to love their neighbours and their enemies because they are the sons of God the Father. And we are to be like God. We are, not to, we are to demonstrate his character, his good deeds and the very nature of the kingdom by the way in which we treat others. And so the argument that Jesus uses in verses 45 and 47 is the argument from the character of God. This is what God is like and this is what sinners are like. For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Not, do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? God loves not only his friends, but his enemies. He does good to his enemies. He sends rain and sun on his enemies. Whereas the sinful human saves his friendship and love only for his friends. The tax collectors, the Gentiles, know how to love their own. And if you were just loving your own, you're no different to them. You're not salt or light. You're not the holy people of God. You're not like God. One of the characteristics of the criminals who have been killed recently in recent times in Melbourne and in Sydney in underworld shootings is at the funerals, they always say to us, he was a lovely family man. He really cared for his family. 
commonly known as the family. He really cared for them. He was generous. He gave money away freely to all the members of the family because he got the money from killing people with drugs and running prostitution and illegal gambling. But when he got the money, he was really good to his family. If you're really good to your family, you're no better than the mafia hitman. For even he's good to his family. That's the argument Jesus is using, isn't it? The mark of doing good works that will bring praise to God your Father in heaven is not when you're kind to people who love you, but when you're kind to people who don't love you. That is the mark of being a child of the Father. And so the conclusion of verse 48, you therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's a conclusion that's framed on Leviticus 19.2. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. What Israel failed to be, Jesus' disciples must fulfil, must, perf- must perfect. We are to be godly like God, maximising all the laws of God, not trying to minimise so that we can do what we want to do anyway. And this verse not only concludes today's passage in verses 43 to 48, but the whole section from verse 21 through to 48, when he's been illustrating the righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. So let's return to the issue of living with our enemies for a few moments. See, we all have enemies. I'm sorry you do, I'm sorry I do. And as we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, we'll actually attract more hostility, not less. How are we going to live with our enemies that we can expect when we stand up for the truth? Well, friends, there's no point pretending or hiding that I have no enemies and that I've not attracted any critics. I mean, you can see it played out in the public arena in the media. You can see it played out here in, in books and blog land. You can see people, as, as a leader of the Diocese of Sydney, people hate me just by definition. They just carry the name Jensen and you'll see how the media loves you. I mean, it's a staggering, the, 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 the vitriol that is levelled and despising and ridiculing somebody. And you can see that people don't like me, don't trust me, saying all kinds of dreadful things about me. How am I to deal with my enemies? Well, by loving those who hate me, by praying for those who oppose me. That's what Jesus said to do. But what can you do what can you do to help me? Well, pray for me, for those who hurt me and cannot find love in their heart for me, but only hostility and opposition. Pray for them. When you see those nasty letters come in against my brother, pray for the people who would write such nasty letters, that God would be merciful to them and kind to them, that my brother might continue to love them and pray for them. That's enough of me and my brother. What about you? It's the same, isn't it? What are the enemies and the opponents that you will have if you stand up for Jesus Christ? Well, inasmuch as you're able to, you are to live at peace with all people. And with those that you cannot live at peace with? Well, don't seek vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I'll repay. Don't seek vengeance, but love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For think of our Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't repay evil for evil when he suffered, when he reviled. He didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued to trust in him who judges justly. Think about him on the cross. 
as he prayed for his persecutors. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We are those who are to preach the gospel of forgiveness and acceptance, that sinners and rebels like us will be forgiven of their sin, made into the very children of God, the God they ignored and hated. God has done it for us. We must pray it for others. God's own son, instead of coming into this world to condemn the world, came into this world to save the world. God demonstrates his love to us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the message we proclaim to the world and this is the message we've got to live in our own lives. The one that will proclaim the message of forgiveness must live the practice of forgiveness. We're to live by love and forgiveness that we preach and to be God who sends the rain on the just and the unjust, on the friend and on the foe. And so love our enemies. And if you find it hard, then start where Jesus also teaches us, by prayer. That's the place to start. If you're so overwhelmed by what they've said to you, first thing to do is to say, I must pray for that person. And as you start praying for that person, you'll have to think of things to pray for, won't you? And as you start thinking of things to pray for, your heart, your mind is changed. The mercy and love of God has changed our hearts to live with this unearthly love. And in the long run, we'll see our good works for what they are, not weakness, not some kind of psychological, not a personality type, nor just being good-mannered. It's the work of God in our lives. And seeing our good works, they'll say, that's not normal. That's the touch of God. And so they'll see our and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you forgive us for the grudges we bear, that you would forgive us for the hatreds that we share, that you forgive us for not being kind and generous to refugees and to strangers and to aliens and to people who have hurt us, And we would pray, Heavenly Father, that you would so give us a sense of your forgiveness with us, of your grace, of your mercy, of your generosity, that whenever we come into conflict, whenever we are treated badly, whenever we are alienated by somebody or alienating somebody, that you would, by your Spirit, move us to pray for them and that you would hear our prayers, please, Father, and change their hearts as you change our hearts, that we may love them as you love them and as you loved us, sinners as we were, and forgave us at the cost of your own Son. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.